Welcome to Today in Space. I'm your host, Alex Giorfanos, and this week we will be covering orbital news. We're going to talk about what's going on on Earth, in orbit, and around the solar system. So, uh, number one, we're going to talk about uh, astronaut Gene Cernan, who passed away since the last time we had an episode. Uh, We'll then move towards Mars. We'll talk about the Opportunity rover and how it turned 13, and we'll talk about the latest finding of mud on Mars. Then we'll move over to Saturn and Jupiter and talk about the Cassini and Juno missions, respectively. Uh, There's been some pretty amazing photographs taken, pictures taken from the spacecraft of the respective planets, and they're they're mind-blowing. I mean, there's no other way to to describe it. So we'll talk about those. Make sure to go check those out. Uh, And then finally, we'll end up uh, talking about, for orbital news, uh, the OSIRIS-REx location. Where is OSIRIS-REx right now? And what do we expect to see in the next uh, coming months for OSIRIS-REx? Finally, we'll end up covering uh, why uh, this episode has been so late. Uh, The short answer is I've been crazy busy. So we'll talk about what I've been doing and maybe a glimmer of hope for uh, um, the American space program in the next four years. This is Today in Space. Let's start the show. Astronaut Eugene Cernan, or Gene Cernan, as uh, he was called, was an astronaut who was officially the last human being to leave their footprints on the moon. The last, one of the last human beings to go to the moon, and not just the moon, but the last human being to set foot on another orbiting body, celestial body. So, obviously, that that means things like. Mars and other planets. So I I wasn't too familiar with Gene Cernan uh, up until uh, recently, but uh, reviewing his life uh, was a remarkable, remarkable person. Came from um, uh, Middle America, and uh, what what I'm going to play here is NASA Administrator Charles Bolden uh, shared his thoughts on the life and legacy of Gemini and Apollo astronaut Gene Cernan. Uh, who had passed away on January 16th at the age of 82. So this is the uh, this is from NASA's YouTube page. Here. If I were asked, um, you know, if somebody asked me what would you want people to know about Gene Cernan, I think the biggest thing would be that um, he considered himself to be a, uh, you know, middle American kid who uh, had a big dream when he was a child and decided that that dream was worth pursuing. Uh, and ended up becoming the last person to walk on the moon, something that is absolutely incredible. But also somebody who, um, in, in his last months of living, uh, his drive, his motivation was trying to pass that same uh, desire on to young people today, to help them understand that just as he did it coming from small-town America, they could do the same thing. And as it states in the YouTube description, uh, Cernan flew on three separate space missions. He was the second American to walk in space as the pilot of Gemini 9, 
uh, ventured to the moon on Apollo 10, the pathfinder for the first lunar landing, and as commander of Apollo 17, Cernan holds the distinction of being the last person to leave his footprints on the surface of the moon. Uh, surprisingly, that was the best description of Cernan's uh, career uh, in a nice, quick, short paragraph, so I wanted to share that. But I, I don't want it to undermine the, the accomplishments of this uh, this great man. Uh, you know, uh, he's he's another one of the 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 generation that that they were the true pioneers. They they were the crazy motherfuckers that uh, had giant dreams and and were just in the right time in their lives and training and all of that stuff to do something incredible as be one of the extreme few human beings that have walked or been to another planet, never mind seen the Earth from the perspective of orbit. So uh, one of the most profound things I found about Gene Cernan was his, and Administrator Bolden said it, but I think one of the lines, I don't want to, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he did not like the fact that he he didn't want to be known as the last man, last human being to go to another planet, to go to the moon. Uh, from you know what I understood, he was very, very involved. And, and I'm going to be doing a review of that movie um, that he's in, and uh, Illustrator Bolden talks a little bit more about that in the next part. You know, if you want to look at, at his life, particularly the latter part of his life and, and what he was doing with relation to STEM, because that was very important to him. He, um, you know, he sat for a book, which is always, I, I understand it's painful when you do that, uh, but he's, he sat for a book that told the story of his life, and then he got together with a documentarian and did a documentary on his life called Last Man on the Moon. And he has, his desire was to use that movie as a source of conversation to travel to youth groups and college campuses, again, to, to allow people to see that somebody from small-town America uh, could, in fact, have giant dreams and could dream to do impossible things and, and go on to do that if they were willing to study and work hard and pursue fields of endeavor that, that were pretty difficult at times in the technical field, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. So that was something about which he was really passionate. So we will be doing a review of Last Man on the Moon and, uh, you know, really, really in honor of Gene Cernan and, and what his, his one of his final missions was, which was to inspire and get those, uh, the people who can dream big, who have a reason to dream big and who, who want to do great things and have a fantastic future. So we'll do that review. And uh, I just wanted to close up with some uh, words from Buzz Aldrin, uh, a friend of Gene Cernan. And this is directly from BuzzAldrin.com. It was released uh, the day that Gene Cernan passed away. Today, we lost yet another hero. Gene Cernan and I met for the first time when we were selected for the third group of astronauts in November of 1963. We started our training together in January of 1964 and eventually worked together as the backup crew of Gemini 9. He was a Navy guy and I was an Air Force so there was always a friendly dose of ribbing and trying to one-up each other that continued to this day. 
we had the very interesting task of training together on the maneuvering unit, a jetpack like George Clooney used in the movie Gravity, which was a fascinating project and was quite complicated. Unfortunately, NASA felt it was too risky, so we weren't able to use it during our Gemini missions. I left NASA before Gene's mission to the moon on Apollo 17, but of course followed it closely with the rest of the world. He served the nation extremely well on his mission with Ron Evans and the first scientist astronaut, Jack Schmidt. It was the final mission to the moon, but our hopes had been that we would press forward and eventually be on Mars as the next destination. Unfortunately, that hasn't happened, and Gene is the last person to step foot on another celestial body. He was the last man on the moon, and he wasn't happy about that, and continually stressed that he didn't want to be the last. Gene was probably the strongest spokesman for astronauts for lunar travel and advocating a return to the moon. He made multiple trips to Washington to give testimony along with Neil Armstrong and Jim Lovell to promote NASA and not losing our pioneering spirit. He wasn't really a Mars guy like me, but he cared deeply about continuing manned space exploration. Us astronauts will always remember his cheerful and smiling approach to everything. With the passing of the first man, Neil Armstrong, and the passing of the last man, Gene Cernan, is up to us middlemen to carry on spirit of Apollo into the future for our nation and the world. So uh, really a, a touching letter from Buzz Aldrin, really getting giving you an idea of someone who was a friend of Gene Cernan and another fellow astronaut. And, you know, uh, I think the debate of Moon versus Mars uh, will continue here in the future, but I hope it becomes less a, a competition over which one we go to, uh, allowing us to waste money uh, duplicating our efforts and more on focusing our efforts wisely and most effectively towards pursuing both because ultimately to go to Mars, we will need to develop space technologies and, and human-rated space technologies to have our colonies uh, ready to go, our technologies for colonies and how to live in space or, or to live in a space colony down uh, so that way, by the time we are going to Mars, we have the proper tech. Either way, uh, we we send a Godspeed to Gene Cernan in the afterlife, wherever we may end up or wherever we don't end up. Uh, either way, uh, uh, Godspeed to him, uh, an, an amazing American, an amazing human being who accomplished a lot, even up to his final days. So thank you, Gene Cernan, for all the work you did. And I'll hope to pass on that fire that passion of the space program and, and that pioneering spirit to whoever listens to this podcast, hopefully. Now let's move over to Buzz Aldrin's favorite planet, Mars. And to start, we're going to talk about Opportunity's birthday, the Opportunity rover that launched with Spirit, uh, both rovers being the robotic geologist sent to Mars to investigate certain areas for the evidence of water. And... The Opportunity rover turned 13 on January 24th, uh, which was the date it actually landed. It arrived at Mars uh, in 2004, and Spirit was launched before that, June 10th of 2003, and made it to Mars just before, uh, 21 days before Opportunity did on January 3rd. Now, just a little bit from uh, the actual mars.nasa.gov site uh, in just the overview of both rovers. First paragraph states, in January 2004, two robotic geologists named Spirit and Opportunity landed on opposite sides of the red planet. 
With far greater mobility than the 1997 Mars Pathfinder rover, these robotic explorers have trekked for miles across the Martian surface, conducting field geology and making atmospheric observations, carrying identical, sophisticated sets of science instruments. Both rovers have found evidence of ancient Martian environments where intermittently wet and habitable conditions existed. Uh, Now, both rovers uh, landed with parachutes being deployed to slow the descent and rockets firing to slow them down uh, just before impact. And then the airbags inflated to cushion their landing. And then after they bounced and rolled to a halt, a protective structure of pedals opened, brought the landers to an upright position and provided a platform from which the rovers drove onto the Martian surface. It's actually pretty cool. You guys should definitely check the video out. Uh, It's also really fun to watch the team that sent it there on, on the day it lands and seeing their reaction when it finally gets done. I mean, think about the, the countless hours and years spent for this one moment. Uh, it's, it's a really cool thing to witness people just seriously uh, celebrating that kind of thing. And then the curiosity Rover landing was, was the one that I, I grew up with, but regardless, we're talking about opportunity today. It's also a good one. Check it out. So, uh, to cover what Opportunity did, just really quick, back from this overview, I thought it was a nice little snippet. Opportunity's study of Eagle and Endurance craters, those are the names of the craters, uh, revealed evidence for past interdune playa lakes that evaporated to form sulfate-rich sands. The sands were reworked by water and wind, solidified into rock, and soaked by groundwater. Opportunity is examining more sedimentary bedrock exposures along a route leading from Endurance to Victoria Crater, where an even broader, deeper section of layered rock is likely exposed that could reveal new aspects of Martian geologic history in Meridiani Planum. Now, if you really want to nerd up and uh, celebrate all things Opportunity and uh, robotics slash just hooray robots... uh, Check out this uh, this NASA video um, celebrating the 13 years on Mars. It ex- is extremely nerdy in all the greatest ways. Um, a little a little corny for my taste, but uh, I, w- I would like to pa- go past that. And I want to ask you guys what you think about the way that they like talked about the rover. They kind of compared it to a teenager and tried to explain what opportunity does now and kind of compare it to a teenager. I'm just interested to see if you guys like uh, the personification of robots. Uh, does it make you care about them more? Does it, um, yeah, really, does it make you care about it more? And do you think it's the right way to, to teach it? Uh, not pointing fingers. I'm just interested to see if it's a technique that you guys think works. So watch it. Get ready for some nerdiness and uh, enjoy it. Now we can talk about curiosity because why wouldn't we? But the reason we're talking about it this week is because the rover actually helped examine slabs of rock uh, crosshatched with shallow ridges that likely originated as cracks in drying mud, which means if this holds up, as the NASA article says here, uh, these would be the first mud cracks, technically called desiccation cracks, confirmed by the Curiosity mission. 
they would be evidence that the ancient era when these sediments were deposited, including some included some drying after wetter conditions. So Curiosity has found evidence of ancient lakes in older, lower-lying rock layers and also in younger mudstone that is above old soaker. Uh, a quote here from... Let's see here. Uh, where is the original quote? Come on now. Come on now. Give me the original person. Uh, Nathan Stein was a graduate student at Caltech in Pasadena, California, who leads the investigation of a site called Old Soaker. That's incredible. Um, on lower Mount Sharp on Mars. Uh, Nathan Stein does an amazing job. Keep up the good work. Um, he's quoted as saying, even from a distance, we could see a pattern of four- and five-sided polygons that don't look like fractures we've previously seen with curiosity. It looks like what you'd see beside the road where muddy ground has dried and cracked. Uh, the cracked layer formed more than three billion years ago and was subsequently buried by other layers of sediment, uh, becoming stratified rock. And the wind erosion stripped it away, the layers of old soaker, and the material had filled, that it filled the cracks, resisted erosion better than the mudstone around it, so the pattern from cracking now appears as raised edges. So it's kind of a fossil thing going on there. Uh, now, the team used Curiosity to examine the crack-filling material, and I guess there's two different types uh, that you're usually looking for, and both were found at Old Soaker, and that might indicate multiple generations of fracturing Mud cracks first with sediment accumulating in them, then a later episode of underground fracturing and vein forming. Mm -hmm. uh, now, as the Curiosity Project scientist Ashwin Vasavada of NASA's JPL in Pasadena says, uh, if these are indeed mud cracks, they fit well with the context of what we're seeing in the section of Mount Sharp Curiosity has been climbing for months. Uh, the ancient lakes varied in depths and extent over time, and sometimes disappeared. Uh, we're seeing more evidence of dry intervals between what had been mostly a record of long-lived lakes. Uh, now, the science are, scientists are going to continue to analyze the data acquired at the possible mud cracks and also watch for similar-looking sites. They want to check for clues not evident at Old Soaker, such as the cross-sectional shape of the cracks. So we may have actually found evidence where mud and water uh, existed on Mars. Uh, and the whole reason Curiosity, uh, well, not the whole reason, but what Curiosity is looking at right now at Mount Sharp is, is looking into what happened to the environment on Mars that evolved it from being this area where there's drying mud and water, evolving into conditions that were, as the article says, drier and less favorable for life. So Curiosity is going to keep working on that. And we'll move on from Mars to a little bit further out in the solar system to Juno at Jupiter and Cassini at Saturn. And we'll talk a little bit about the two pictures that you really need to go see and then dive more into all the pictures that both Juno and Cassini are doing. So first, let's go to Saturn and Cassini and talk about this article that shows all the incredible pictures of 
the rings of Saturn close up like we've never seen it before. And anyone who's not familiar of, of how we uh, think that rings really start is uh, they, they could have been moons that, uh, because of the gravity uh, from Saturn, were actually ripped apart and eventually, over time, became these rings. So, you know, originally, when Saturn was first, you know, formed in the way that we know it, it may have had all these other moons and, and other objects that were um, orbiting Saturn or, or influenced by the orbit, uh, by the gravity of Saturn. And the gravity ripped these things apart over time. And some of these images, you can see, you know, they're different thicknesses. So, so, you know, maybe it's spread out over time. You know, I don't know, but they're going to be analyzing this and releasing all this information. So we're probably going to do a whole episode on Cassini. Um, but I just want to touch on some of this stuff here. Uh, the So Cassini is in this 20-orbit uh, dive uh, past the outer edge of the main ring system right now. It's halfway through that. Uh, and the ring-grazing orbits, this is all... Uh, from the article here that you'll see in this week's Space Links uh, from NASA uh, and the, the JPL Cassini, um, Saturn.jpl.nasa.gov. Um, the ring grazing orbits began last November and they'll continue until late April when Cassini begins its grand finale. Uh, during the 22 finale orbits, Cassini will repeatedly plunge through the gap between the rings and Saturn. And first, final plunge is scheduled for April 26th. Um, but these images, I mean, even some of the images of the the farthest edges, you know, um, of the ring and rings, you can really just notice the gravity. Like, it, it's one of those few times where we'll actually be able to visualize what the effect of gravity is. Now, granted, it's going to be in a pretty much two-dimensional space it's three-dimensional it's got thickness but you know obviously we're not going to be able to see like all around saturn what the gravity is doing but these rings are are really an expression of the gravity that saturn exerts and the rings are a result of what that crushing gravity can do and actually mars uh you know years from now hundreds of years from now uh the moon, like Phobos, and uh, the other moon of Mars, um, they will eventually be crushed and turn into rings. And so Mars will eventually have rings. You know, and what we may be able to observe from Cassini's fi finale here is when we, once we can an analyze these rings more, and I mean, they're even coming up with terms uh, already. You know, the the nomenclature's already started. Uh, so different features are being named straw and propellers. So there's different things to look at. But, you know, one of the great things about what we're going to learn from this, I hope, is how maybe gravity, you know, how does a, a ring get created? You know, how does, can we figure out how the gravity of Saturn uh, related and how it ripped apart these objects that were, uh, already in orbit around Saturn and, and made these beautiful rings, and maybe we can estimate when Mars will have one. But it would definitely be something interesting to learn for the future of, you know, how do these rings get created and and learn more about gravity, which is really uh, a force that we've yet to harness, especially in the way that they did in the movie Interstellar. 
but this is real life and it is weirder and stranger than most sci-fi movies. Now we move over to the mighty Jupiter and the Juno mission because as the Cassini mission is in its final days, Juno is really gearing up here for the next big parts of its mission and really the beginning of its mission. And while it had some troubles early on, uh, it seems to be it, it's picked back up. And now uh, NASA actually on January 19th asked the public to vote for where the Juno spacecraft should aim its camera during the next close pass of Jupiter on February 2nd, which is coming up here. Now, they did vote uh, from January 19th to January 23rd, and they said that they we are looking forward to people visiting our website and becoming part of the Juno Cam Imaging team. Uh, this was by Candy Hansen, uh, the Juno co-investigator from the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson, Arizona. It's up to the public to determine the best locations in Jupiter's atmosphere for Juno Cam to capture during this flyby. Now, I thought it was really cool, um, I, and I actually went to vote, but uh, you had to sign up, and it was just a little too complicated for me. Now, I hope it was easier for everyone else, but the... Uh, regardless, the Juno cam will begin taking pictures as the spacecraft approaches Jupiter's North Pole. And then two hours later, the imaging will conclude as the spacecraft completes its close flyby, departing from below the gas giant's South Pole. So going north to south. And Juno is currently on its fourth orbit around Jupiter. It's taken 53 days for Juno to complete just one orbit. Now, uh, one of the photos that I wanted to call your attention to is the one that we were actually uh, voting on and, and where next to look. And it was taken on December 11th, 2016. And I mean, we've all seen, you know, the picture of the storms on Jupiter, but you never really see a good picture of just how wildly torrent and just like violently natural storms that are going on on the surface of Jupiter and it's complete chaos. I mean, you look at it, it's complete chaos, but it's beautiful. I mean, it's, you know, from the perspective, from the safe perspective, it looks incredible. It looks like some crazy mixture that's, that's constantly, you know, moving around and, and twirling and, and the, the storms that are created. I mean, it really is, uh, the mighty Jupiter, you know, when you see this and, and you, you actually get a good visual representation of what is going on on the gas giant. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really incredible. Take a look at that picture and, you know, check out this week, uh, check us out. We'll, we'll make sure to post, uh, what the results were from that vote and we'll find out where we'll be looking, uh, during the f February 2nd flyby. <laughs> Our final piece for orbital news this week will be where is OSIRIS-REx now? Uh, OSIRIS-REx, for those that are new or don't remember, OSIRIS-REx is going to the asteroid Bennu, which is one of those asteroids that has the original ingredients that were available when our solar system was created. So the 
great find we could potentially find, or the mystery we may be able to to solve, is what are the ingredients, what is the makeup of a solar system that inevitably created life, that is now searching for more life? So if we can find what those ingredients are, then we can have a better idea of where to search if we need a new home or if we're searching for other life out there, uh, especially life like us. So the way that OSIRIS-REx is going to do that is going to drop an arm that's as it comes in to the asteroid. It's going to match the speed and make its way down to the surface. It's going to extend an arm that's going to release nitrogen, uh, and it's going to push up a whole bunch of dust. And while it does that, it's going to suck up uh, a few tablespoons or teaspoons, I'm not sure which, a small amount of soil to bring back. Then that is going to... the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft will come back to Earth and release the capsule that has those ingredients, and it'll uh, land somewhere in the middle of the United States. It'll be recovered and analyzed in a uh, a clean room to make sure that nothing infects it, or if anything that's in it could infect us, uh, it'll hopefully be protected, just like, uh, what is it, uh, well, any sci-fi movie that an alien either comes back or something gets analyzed and it goes horribly wrong. So uh, those precautions will be taken. Uh, But uh, every week or so on OSIRIS-REx's Twitter page, and that's at OSIRIS-REx, O-S-I-R-I-S-R-E-X, which the mission patch, by the way, is has an actual T-Rex on it, which is incredible. But the Twitter page about every week, Uh, overviews where OSIRIS-REx actually is on its journey. And on January 30th, uh, OSIRIS-REx tweeted, the journey to Banu and back, which is a hashtag, hashtag to Banu and back, continues. I've traveled more than 425 million kilometers. That's 264 million miles. A few more stats here. Uh, The one-way light time for light to go from OSIRIS-REx to Earth, or the other way around, uh, is six and a half minutes. And the distance from the sun currently, uh, or on January 30th, was 0.91 astronomical units. Now, one astronomical unit being the distance from the Earth to the sun. So it's actually closer than the Earth is at the moment. And its relative speed to the sun is 33 kilometers per second. And its relative speed to Earth is 20 kilometers per second. And for the rest of the journey, it still has 1,568,346,929 kilometers. And it's only traveled 425 or 426 million kilometers. So still a long way to go, but pretty interesting if you guys want to follow along and uh, really see where that mission is, because we'll be following that through its entirety for the show here. So uh, expect to get more updates, and we're going to learn more about Dante Loretta, who is the PI on this mission. Uh, It's very active online, so it'll be very interesting to hopefully reach out and interview him and talk to him about the mission in the future here. But I did send in my paperwork to become an ambassador an ambassador of the OSIRIS-REx mission. So I'm waiting to hear back from that. And hopefully we'll get some, we'll get the goods that we'll be able to share with you on the OSIRIS-REx mission as we search 
define what the ingredients of us is. Where did we come from? I don't know. We'll find out. Well, hopefully. So that ends it for Orbital News. Uh, I'm going to follow up here with an update on AG3D printing and what it's been like as an entrepreneur, uh, working for myself, and just why it's been so crazy and busy lately. Uh, but uh, before I do that, I uh, just wanted to give the quick, slight, you know, tiny glimmer of hope here uh, for the American space program in the future. Um, during the inauguration speech, the newest president, the latest president, Donald Trump, uh, did mention the space program. And I do want to quote what his speech was, not in his voice. So hopefully the message comes through. But regardless, I think it's an incredible thing that any president talks about the American space program in their inauguration speech. You know, we don't get that much uh, publicity as it is unless there's some kind of explosion or something crazy happens. But, or there's things going around that's saying that uh, we're going to be in 15 days of darkness online. Those things are hilarious. But... As a president saying that, I think it's pretty important. So let's actually go to the quote from the actual speech, you know, because I think it's good because they they wrote it, they reviewed it, and they said, "Yep, this is good." So this is this is good. But to make it even better, I want to try and do Donald Trump's portion of that speech in my best JFK impression. All right. <clears throat> no challenge can match the heart and fight and spirit. Of America. Well, this is terrible, but I'm going to go with it anyways. We will not fail. Our country will thrive and prosper again. There it is. We stand at the birth of a new millennium, ready to unlock the mysteries of space, to free the earth from the miseries of disease, and to harness the energies, industries, and technologies of tomorrow. A new national pride will stir ourselves, lift our sights, and heal our divisions. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a that's a pretty passionate part of the speech. I thought it was good. I got tingles when I was watching the inauguration, and space was actually mentioned. My mind almost exploded. Uh, so I think that's great. I think it's also great that Elon Musk met with him because, uh, I don't know, that's a, that's a pretty big pony, and he uh, seems like a betting man. So I am hoping the new commander-in-chief will be betting on the space program, and by his speech, it seems like he is. So enough about that. No more politiscience, and let's move into the final thoughts for this week. So let's talk about what has been going on here with uh, my new life, my new career, uh, being an entrepreneur, and AG3D, which has been really a lot of the focus of the last month. And one of the reasons this podcast has been late, you know, I, I do apologize, guys. Uh, unfortunately, I got to start focusing. Um, when things get really busy, I have to focus my efforts towards the things that are making me money and uh, and growing the business. I mean, these are the crucial moments in the beginning here. So I do apologize for the lateness, uh, but I wanted to make sure I got this episode out uh, by the end of January. So at least I uh, wasn't leaving you guys hang, hung, hanging out and dry, uh, if that's the expression. I don't think it is. <laughs> but um, other than the fact that I uh, just put words together uh, that don't seem to work. Uh, it's been very, very productive here. 
there's been a ton of stuff. Some of the things you may have seen if uh, you follow uh, all the other things that we do online, especially on Twitter, you would have seen that we did a, our first live launch hangout for the SpaceX launch of uh, Iridium 1, which was really, really fun. Me, John, and Sarah, uh, both John and Sarah have been on the show before. They are uh, established members of the Today in Space family. And uh, I wanted to have them on. It was right around my birthday, and it was just something I wanted to do. I've wanted to do a live broadcast for a long time. It's the live aspects always what I wanted to get into for podcasting in the first place. I love it. And this was one of those first times where, you know, there was a lot to learn. There was, you know, we've got to set up some kind of a scene, some kind of a, a set, if you will. Uh, so I reorganized everything, put myself in a corner so that, you know, now we can actually come and and bring live shows more often and you know lighting was one of the things i had to work on and uh luckily uh we couldn't figure out facebook live uh if you watch the video <laughs> which is on the home page it's going to be in this week's episode too uh but check it out let me know what you guys think uh, it was a lot of fun and i hope you guys enjoy it and we'll do more as we uh we go further into the year here so thank you everyone for watching that i mean we've got uh, quite a few views already. I mean, we're not talking, you know, hundreds or thousands, but you know, we're, we're, people are checking it out and I appreciate it. So, uh, the biggest thing you can do to help is just let me know what you guys thought, uh, what you thought was good and what you thought we could work on. And that would be a huge help. So, uh, you can do that through on Twitter at El Greco, E-L-G-R-3-C-O. That's my personal Twitter account. You can do that through our Facebook page, which is for the podcast at facebook.com forward slash today in space podcast. I think if you put today in Facebook search, the last I checked, it's the first thing that will come up. But today in space, regardless on Facebook and always through the email at today in space podcast at gmail.com. Now, as far as AG3D goes, uh, I have been, I have jumped into this new role of, of doing what, you know, what our, what our motto is, what our statement is for AG3D, which is bringing pe bringing your ideas into reality. And it has been one of the most incredible feelings I've had, uh, since the last time we talked, I've had a few meetings with different people who are, were doing just that, were bringing their ideas into reality, whether it's a prototype of something just to have around the house, or maybe it's uh, bringing a whole new project, uh, product into life, uh, so that way you can bring it in front of investors and, and get to the next step, or even people with just a simple drawing on a napkin, we can really uh, go from... from from that stage and bring you all the way through, you know, and we can offer design services, we can offer 3D printing, prototyping services, and even some small range production services where, you know, if we have a part that's 3D printable, we could make anywhere from, you know, one to about 5,000 of these things. You know, that's something we have the capabilities to do. So if uh, any project, big or small, uh, literally, uh, we, sh we, I would love to talk to you about it and hopefully we can help bring your idea into reality. And so that's been an incredible thing. Obviously I can't talk too much about the individual projects, but, uh, one of the exciting things that I did release since the last time this, ep uh, an ep we released an episode was, uh, I talked about for Christmas time, I was going to, uh, just 3d print 
my Christmas presents. That was going to be, you know, the, the, the gifts I give over the holidays, you know, um, self-employed now and was newly self-employed around Christmas time. So, uh, the only option I really had was to make things for Christmas because I didn't have money. So, um, it was really cool. And one of the most fun projects that I worked on this Christmas was the Pokemon chess set. So there, there was a bunch of models, you know, I didn't design these by myself. There was a model I found on Thingiverse, uh, someone who had made an original, uh, Pokemon chess set. And I had to adjust the Kings that were Mew and Mewtwo. And I had to make those from different models from other people that had already posted them online for the community and, and to be shared. And so, uh, those files are online, they're free, but the most important thing is check out the projects blog at ag3d-printing.com and check out this this latest one which will be in this week's episode because it's what I want to do with the projects blog is make it something that's uh kind of like a scientific journal but I also want to make it so that you learn something and it's not too you know academically heavy you know I want it to be something that's true to what's really happening here it's i'll be describing the actual physical things that are happening or what's going on with the machine i'm not going to dumb it down but I, I want it to be something that anyone can can read and hopefully make it uh interesting so i i'm not a writer so uh, i've gotten a lot better through doing this podcast but uh check it out let me know what you guys think about how it's written what i can improve on and what you liked I would really appreciate that. Uh, and and that, that one's easy because you can comment literally on the post at the bottom. So like it, share it, spread the word. Uh, and that was, that was a great project to, to put together. So uh, we're going to have more of those as I find time to get these together. I'm, I'm working on one, another one already. And probably over the next week, week and a half, I'll, I'm going to be starting a few more. So uh, it's going to be chronologuing all the different projects that I can share with you guys and you know maybe someday if someone's trying to do the same thing they'll come across my website and and that post uh just like I did doing some of these projects you know uh, other people who had posted online who had done their own projects and done something similar to what I'm trying to do I I would not have been able to complete some of these projects or learn what I need to learn without other people doing that so this is kind of me giving back so check it out. Let me know what you think. And that's about it, guys. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. And as always, spread love, spread science, uh, and have a great week. We'll see you next time. Next time, we are going to be talking about, uh, we're going to be doing a topic. And the topic is going to be, I think, rightfully so, the Cassini mission, because it is in its final uh it's in the final epoch, if that's the right word, of its mission. It's uh, running out of fuel. And so they're going to use the, the capabilities of the Cassini spacecraft to continue to, to dive deeper into the Saturn system, inevitably crash landing on Saturn and taking images and as much scientific data as possible. Uh, the most recent one we talked about earlier in the episode with the image of the rings, it's just shocking you know, we, we get these pictures, you know, the old picture of just Saturn and its rings, you know, was already kind of amazing. And now 
to see them at such detail and to see some of the deeper uh, further out rings where you can actually almost see the ripples of gravity that's that that tore the, these materials apart and ended up making them these rings that they are so we'll dive more into that we'll if you guys have any questions before we do that episode please reach out i'd love to answer them and we'll dive deep into the secrets of saturn and what cassini has unearthed and will unearth in its inevitable uh final incredible moments of crash landing on saturn so we'll do that next week and as always spread love spread science i think i already said that All right. Love you guys. Thanks. See you later.